Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to the show. Well, I have a really sad heart as I'm recording this because as most of you know, I'm based in Christchurch, New Zealand. And just a few days ago, there was a terrorist attack here in Christchurch, this city that I love. And so it's really hard for me to record this episode introduction. But just to give some context, the mosque where the main killings happened were only about a kilometer away from my work. And just the day before, I had been on a run in Hagley Park. And I literally remember looking over and seeing the mosque as I ran by it. Our office was then in lockdown during the afternoon on the Friday when we didn't know what was happening or who was out there. And my kids were at school also in lockdown. So it was a pretty traumatic day all around. And perhaps the best example of how close I am to it is the fact that I actually knew someone who was killed in the attacks. So this is a really raw time for me and the city of Christchurch. And I think it will be a while before we recover. But I do have confidence in the strength of love as a powerful light to shine on the evil and drive it out. And I urge each of us to reach out and tell the ones that we love that we actually love them. Because sometimes I think those sorts of statements get left unsaid. And also consider if there's barriers or things that have stood in the way of a relationship healing, what is it that you could do to make first step to actually make that relationship right? Because in the context of life or death, you start to realize what is most valuable and important. And I'll give you a hint. It's not money, houses, or cars. It's all about people. I was looking through the episodes I hadn't released yet, and I just felt that this one with Peter Beck was the most appropriate as some sort of a response, because in it we talk about his experiences being the dean of the Christchurch Cathedral at the time of the earthquakes. And I just felt, listening back to it, that this might be something that helped in the healing process as we move forward, because we talk about a lot of different deep topics. Here's an excerpt of my interview with Peter. Exactly. It's a very Celtic way of thinking, the, the thin place. And a thin place is where you could happen anywhere, and you suddenly have a sense of, and it's kind of like where the whole spiritual dimension of life suddenly come close and touched you, mm. just for a moment, just a glimpse. Um, and I, you know, it, happened, it can happen in church. Uh, hopefully it happens a lot in church for some people. But it'd be happening, you, know, you walk along, you know, the usual story, walking along a beach or whatever, mm. or it can happen in a conversation. It feels to me a little bit like that with you and me, mm-hmm. actually, at the moment. This mm-hmm. kind of, we're actually touching some, mm-hmm. this is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's when, when Rowan, Rowan William talks about, ah, oh, look at that. Watch. Mm. You, you ought to just, ah, just be quiet and experience that. Um, so those are those thin places. and it, it I really feel like this attack on Christchurch has been something which is yet again a call for the city to unify and reach out in love and support to each other. If you do enjoy this episode and what I'm trying to do by telling stories of people who are inspiring, then you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes as well. Now let's get into the interview with Peter. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Peter Beck to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. Um, This show um, is one where we talk about purpose and why people are doing what they do. Mm -hmm. But I find it's helpful to go back to the beginning of a person's life. So if we could just start with you and just tell us a bit about your background and where you're from. Okay, cool. Well, I was born in Sheffield in Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. So I'm a pom. I was born in a pub. And I'm a priest. If I hadn't been a priest, I'd have probably run a pub. Right. That's my parents, grandparents on both sides, and most of my aunts and uncles, and my brother all around pubs. 
uh, and it's a very similar job actually to be a, being a, uh, a priest. In Is that right? Way. Oh yeah, it's yeah. about communities and building relationships. Yeah, and sure. All that kind of stuff. So that's where I was born. Uh, brought up mainly in the West Country in England, and uh, ended up going to Oxford University, mm-hmm. where I had three years, brilliant years, uh, where I read modern history. Mm-hmm. And, and just just backing up a little bit, sure. just with your childhood and the mm. growing up in the pub environment and things, just tell us more about what that was like. I'm oh, just curious, because yeah, in my yeah, mind, I've got this sort of, maybe um, by film and TV, you know, the image of the English pub, ah. and, you know, sort of what's going on and yeah, yeah well, what was it like It was a bit you? like that, uh, mostly kind of working class pubs mm-hmm. um, and one of a couple of big hotels. We finally moved to a place near Bristol where Dad had a big pub and a ballroom and that kind of stuff. And when I was about 14 or 15, I used to play the organ in the ballroom on the Sunday night when they didn't have dancing, because in those days they wouldn't allow it. Mm. And uh, so play along, sing along, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I had did. I got paid reasonably well for doing chores like I used to clean out the loos um, during right. the week. All <laughs> so, the good stuff. Yeah, sure all the good stuff. Yeah, that was cool. Uh, but I guess, um, I mean, uh, from the tiny little age, I've always been mixing with people of all sorts, in and out, in and out of the bars and the, and the restaurants and various stuff and the staff and so on in these places because mm. a couple of them are quite big. Mm. And so I've always been used to mixing with people mm-hmm. and I'm an extrovert. So that's been, and that's also helped in my career, really, mm. of course. Mm. The, uh, the downside to it, I guess, was it was... Um, uh, in the, those days, you didn't have a kind of like a separate house or a flat or apartment where the landlord lived. You lived in and out the whole business. Right. And I think I, I'm, I kind of felt a bit isolated a lot of the time. And, and, uh, and, you know, we didn't have that much of a family life during the week. I mean, we'd go off on holidays and things together. But, um, you know, a lot of the time I was on my own in great big long passages I remember as a kid big long passages and lonely little me from time to time uh, but uh, you know we got through that mm. and uh, that was that was all okay and 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 what sort of things did you enjoy on your own in the long passages? Oh, right? okay. Were you into reading or what was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Into reading, playing the piano. Um, yeah, lots of reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and a fair amount of oh, just uh, a kind of early stages of meditating really I suppose because mm-hmm. later on that became rather important to me. Hmm. Um, so that that was cool. I was good at school. I was good at sport. Um, ended up ended up head boy of the school and all that kind of stuff. And vice captain of house. I enjoyed all that. That was great. And then was the first boy or oh boy, yeah, of my school. It was a new grammar school. Um, first one to go up to Ox- Oxford, mm. uh, which was pretty amazing. Um, I, a mate of mine. I was in scouting a lot. Did a lot in scouts as a kid. Mm. And a mate of mine was at Oxford, and he was became a really really close friend. And he encouraged me. So. I took the risk, and there we were. There I was as this uh, state grammar school boy in an Oxford college full of public school, you know, private schools. Right. Um, and that was interesting. So, so what was that like? Yeah, Coming well, in because you're, what, 18, 17? Yeah, 17, sort of, 18, coming yeah. in. Um, yeah, I think it was quite tough, except that quite a lot of them liked me. Uh, in the, the college I went to, Merton College at Oxford, they were, they were doing a big push to try and get more state grammar school kid boys. Mm-hmm. It was only boys, only men then. Uh, in and uh, so there were quite a few people mostly north country kids actually who were there with me and, and then you had the others of course many of whom were really really nice uh, 
and many of them were really up themselves. Um, <laughs> but it was great. I loved it at, at Oxford. Um, it was a very privileged life, seriously privileged. I mean, Merton was one of the wealthiest colleges. The food was amazing. We all had separate you know, rooms with a, 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 a lounge off, a study and a separate right. bedroom and a scout. You know, so a, was it? So in my mind, I'm thinking Harry Potter and sort of Hogwarts and you know the Great Hall and yeah. things with food. Is it yeah. a little bit like yeah, that? Yeah, a little or? bit like that, except we didn't sleep in dorms, of course. We right. all had separate rooms. And uh, a server, yeah, actually a servant, a guy's called a scout. It's mostly guys, and they were retired from the army. They would have been mapmen in the army and so on. Mm. And really, really lovely older guys. And we were eighteen, eh? You know. Mm. And um, what was really interesting about them is you learned a lot from them if you treated them properly. You know, as a as a as an equal, and you didn't condescend or patronize them. Then you learn heaps. But if you did treat them badly, then you had to deal with you. You know, right. so, <laughs> so, uh, but it was a weird thing as a, a boy of eighteen, really, a young man of eighteen, having you know people clean your shoes for you and make your bed for you and stuff like that. Right. So, I think most of us learnt something really important about what it means in terms of relationships. And uh, as many people from Oxford, as, yeah, Cambridge, you end up into quite sort of leadership roles within the community. I think it was good training. Mm. But the good thing about it also is I'd done three years there. During that time, I'd made the decision that I want to go and explore being a priest, which was, oh, my God, what am I doing this for? I'd been down, um, I was at, I'd been down in about 1890, I was 18, down to Wells Cathedral in Somerset. Uh, my parents lived in Bristol and um, for the midnight mass of Christmas Eve. Now, I'm totally unobjective about this, that Wells Cathedral is the most beautiful building in the world. Mm. Turn up, snow on the ground, Cecil Beatty Mill, tidal winter, this beautiful west front of the cathedral with uh, floodlights on it, all the pigeon droppings making it full of colour. You go and place is packed, incense, smells, bells, choirs, all the beauty of it, and I just wept. It was so beautiful. And then at the end of the service, the choir and the bishop processed around to the crypt to bless the crib or whatever it was and we all had candles and they turned all the lights out so all you saw was the the the, the uh, spotlights on the glass on the east end and that really did i really just felt whoa and i was totally moved wow driving home in my old morris minor and um, which was a clapped out car uh, on the way home i started to think clergymen because that's all they were then clergymen aren't different from anybody else really and all I'd really known of them, I'd been to church a bit, all I'd really known of them was that they, well, they were usually, they were old, they wore dark suits, grey hair, lived in big houses, and didn't talk to anybody very much, except maybe in a pulpit, you know, about six feet above contradiction. And I, for some reason, because of my life and all I'd been, I started to have this passion about wanting to break through all that stereotyping. And, and actually, you know, the, the Christian faith is not about, it's, well, it's about some of that, but it's, you have to break through it. It's about ordinary people and ordinary things in real life. So get away from all the pompous stuff and actually engage with people where they really are. Um, and it doesn't matter if you use a four-letter word. I mean, what's, yeah, it's not a problem. What is it about is the wholeness of our lives and being engaged in life and living it. You know, so I was doing all that. Uh, for myself and, and you're processing this sort of after that yeah after, after that, that because i've started to have yeah because i'd started to have these things about yeah maybe getting involved more in the church and yeah. wow well, what was i doing because it's a you know in many ways crap job mm. poorly paid mm. and all the rest church of england this is 19 and you're coming out of oxford university yeah, yeah. right like yeah, yeah, the, yeah. one that, of the that, top universities sure. of the world and that's right and you know the, there's a lot of church churchy stuff at oxford and yeah. uh, some very interesting churches you know, like the high anglican ones that are more roman than the romans and the rest and i got caught up into some of that stuff 
And at that, what, what I was doing there, which is called Mary, Mary Magdalene in the, in the Broad Street, was that I discovered the mystery of faith. I went to this where it was kind of like everything was, it's not about set questions. It's not about ticking boxes. Do you believe this tick? Do you believe that tick? It's actually more about exploring the questions of what does it mean to be human? How do I find meaning, value, and purpose? What does love really look like? How did, da, 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 da. So I began to, began to get sort of caught up in all that and quite passionate about it. So um, ended up looking to going for a, uh, a selection conference with the Church of England. And, um, and uh, they, they, I went through it. I was what, 19 by that stage, 20. Mm-hmm. Normally speaking, they'd say, go away for a few years and come back. And they kind of said to me, well, we see you've seen life through the bottom of a beer glass, so you kind of know a lot more about stuff. So we'll let you go through. Mm-hmm. So I had a look for colleges, and I could have gone to a college near Oxford called Cudston, which would have been another three years of Oxford-style life, uh, which would not have been a good idea, really not a good idea for me. So I looked at some others, and in the end, I went to a college called Salisbury, Salisbury Theological College. It's gone now, but it, and this was 1969 I got there. Right. And... What wow, was, so what we're, was, we're, as we're talking, it's the 50th anniversary then, yeah. isn't it? 69 to yeah. 2019. Well, uh, it's, what happened there was I met the guy who was the principal. His name was Harold Wilson of all names. But he'd been in, in the States working with Carl Rogers into this whole group dynamics type way of style of learning, hmm. which is basically you put people together in a room and they learn. <laughs> so it was more about experiential learning than most colleges in those days, I don't know what they're like now, you go to college, you go to the courses, you, you read the books, you do your essays, and you learn your theology and everything else. And then you go out and you make the world, how does it conform with what I'm learning? Mm-hmm. At Salisbury, what we did was we lived based it around our experiences, experiential. So we lived in groups and we had to deal with our own personalities and the difficulties of living and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff mm-hmm. so it's from then we we read the books beyond that so you based it on your experience before you looked at the, the kind of uh, theology stuff mm. well that for me was just mind-blowing and yeah. then uh, in all doing all that a whole lot of you know prejudices and up my selfness and stuff was pulled apart really because mm. you ended up being in what they call these tea groups or training groups mm. and they were very raw i mean you really got in touch with really personal stuff and people were challenging and caring and brutal and all sorts of things so for me it was an amazing three years experience mm. so that's and it nine- sounds like it was quite a new way of doing things yeah. and when you think yeah. about um yeah because Prior to then, I imagine it was a lot of rote learning and memorizing Correct. and, you know, theology mm. rather than the mm. experience of sure. it. Sure. And that's true of, I think, not just in theological, but true generally in yeah. universities. You yeah, know, yeah. You, you read these papers, but how does it actually relate to real life? Mm. And, and I was, you know, as I said, I was getting, looking at exploring being ordained because I wanted to know what's happening in life, what's happening to people. Mm. I've always had a fascination with people. So I walk down the street. Uh, anytime I'll be seeing people all over the place and I'm often wondering well, what's happening for you in your mm. life how's it going what's happening mm. that kind of stuff and then that that even back then that was a strong way of being mm. like as a 19 year old mm. that was how absolutely you were, yeah absolutely mm. and I guess part of that's having been so used to having a lot of people around me mm. all the time anyway so I got ordained in Christchurch Oxford of all places mm. <laughs> interesting mm. uh, got ordained there was a curate in the parish in a place called Banbury north of uh, Oxford in a team ministry with a, with a lot of kind of also liberal thinking guys, mm-hmm. uh, which was fun. So I did all that, moved on, went off to the States uh, at a place called Virginia Seminary in Washington, D.C., mm. where I was invited to go over by a bishop I knew over there, out there, 
who'd, who'd been doing a thing at Salisbury and we got to know each other, mm. drank a lot of bourbon together and um, he invited me over. He was vice president of the college or something. So I had a three-month what was called continuing ed training. Again, more tea groups, more other stuff like this and um, huge. And I was at this one. I would have been, what, 22, 3 or something like that then. And there are these other guys who are mid-term clergy in their 40s and 50s basically having a retread. And what I learned out of that was all that we're learning here, why the hell has that not been something that was actually part of the courses in our colleges, our theological colleges and our other colleges? Mm. So I learned a lot from that, mm. came home. So what were the insights that you saw from the 40, 50-year-olds you know, who were tired. doing the retread? They, they were mostly really buggered. Right. They were tired. They were on far too many committees. They were, you know, faith. I don't know. I mean, for many of them, their faith was was there, but was mm-hmm. kind of just too caught up in the whole admin of the whole thing. Right. And the church is like that. Like other organizations, you mm-hmm. become a servant of the institution, mm-hmm. uh, which I've got hugely critical things about in my later life, in the recent years, over the, over, after the earthquakes and so mm-hmm. So they, uh, yeah. So, so they, they were they caught up, they were tired. And at the end of it, for most of them, they kind of were refreshed and they had new commitments about cutting down on stuff having more personal time in terms of actually engaging mm. with the issues of the heart rather than just the head. Mm. So that was good. Because maybe what had drawn them to become that, to do that sort of work was the heart matters, right? Like yeah. Maybe it was yeah. Yeah, yeah. helping people and yeah, things. Yeah, could, it could, be, but could it, be. But I mean, one thing about clergy, uh, we when you get ordained, you've got a dog, you know, this clerical collar on. Yeah. And uh, you, well, I don't know whether it's so true now, but you have a sense you have some power. You have influence and power. And within a parish situation, you are the one, in a sense, you can feel this way. Mm. So I, you can love on your own terms, mm. if you see what I mean. There's a, there's a difference. There's a, 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 separation. a separation between mm. you and, and the people. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not a bad thing in many ways, but it can be a bad thing if that feels like it's giving you a, a kind of extra quality of life or an extra sort of power over relationship mm, i see and i think i think quite a few people got ordained for that reason mm. and not knowing it mm. well, i think there would have been something in me in that to start with too mm. and then i had to face all that and grow out of it mm. so anyway while that was happening before i went to uh the states i'd met a girl and um she was a, a kiwi and i used to go across from the parish church into the pub across the road big mm. hotel and i saw this rather attractive young woman most of my best things of life seem to have happened in pubs. Right. <laughs> so we met and uh, kind of, well, the rest is history, really. I went off to the States. Gay went up to work in a hotel in Pitlockery. We corresponded. We kind of courted by post, really. Right. And I dealt with a whole lot of my anxiety about any of that in the groups, in the group that we were working. So we had a similar sort of training group with, um, in, in the U.S., in, in Washington. So we came back. An uh, fun, fun thing was that I went to pick up my mum, who was recently widowed, and brought her back to where I had a house in Banbury. Mm. And um, I was late, and I knew Gay was coming down, and um, she kind of travelled this huge distance, and I just left a note saying, gone to bed, see you in the morning, that's your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that was not a good idea. And anyway, I didn't. I stayed up, and I was going to talk to her about um, what being married to a clergyman might be like. Right. And all that kind of stuff. So wait, this, you hadn't seen her for three months, mm. and then mm-hmm. this is the opening conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. nice. So we'd obviously had a good time. Yeah, yeah. Writing to each other. Sure. So I wanted to raise this whole thing and with a lot of you know, reasons why uh, we shouldn't keep together, really. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that lasted about five minutes, really. So mm. we got decided to get married. And, and that's we've been married now since 1975. Wow. So that was cool. And then through all that, I was in Banbury. Um, I was offered a job in Washington, D.C. in a parish there, a big 
you know, flash, uh, uh, what they call Blue, uh, Blue Ribbon Parish. Mm. And I went to see my bishop in Oxford who said, nah, not a good idea. Right. Not a good idea for you. And if you go, I will actually make it hard for you if you want to come back. And I'm a, <laughs> a young guy. You know? Right. So uh, what was his reasoning well, I there? Well, I think he, 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 probably, he knew be... me better than I knew myself. Right. I mean, I, I was being seduced, really. And you'd, get, you'd get distracted by the Oh, yeah. I mean, the other trappings. Position. I mean, it would have been great. I mean, this was a parish where most of the parishioners, because in the States, of course, they go to church. Yeah. Yeah. Episcopalians. They're rich. They were senators, lawyers, working in... in, in in, yeah, in, the central yeah. power. Whoa, Washington, you know, how exciting is that? <laughs> yeah. They also paid good money. And so, you know, it was not a good thing. Not right. a good thing. So I didn't do that, but I did move on and went to a parish in Lincoln. Why did you listen to his advice? Because I think he's, he was a powerful man. Mm-hmm. I totally respected him. I was pretty angry at the time. Right. Um, and I, but I think he was the right, it was the right thing to do. I didn't mm. feel like that at the time. I just felt, oh, you've just completely floored me and I've mm. had it and what am I going to do? But actually, uh, and then I looked for another job because hmm. I thought I need to leave this diocese because etc. But actually, he was right, hmm. absolutely right. Hmm. But I went from there to Lincoln, uh, and in which, and I was vicar of the city centre church right in the heart of Lincoln. It predated the Norman Conquest, hmm. and that's when I did my first restoration job. Um, but it was a brilliant job. I was called city centre chaplain. Uh, with a little parish, not many parishioners, mostly elderly, beautiful building, and the job was to engage with the life of the city. Right. So I became. So the a, building itself was right there in the middle. Right in the heart. Oh, of I it. see. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful building next yeah. to the railway station. Mm. So you had the trains, you could hear the trains and stuff. So we engaged with the city centre. So I was engaging with the local government, with arts, the theatre, the railway, you name it, mm. a kind of industrial chaplaincy stuff, and at the same time having a congregation, and it was amazing. And I was chaplain to a British Legion and Royal Air Force Association, all that kind of stuff. And they're great, those guys. I mean, that like, reminds my life in the pub, you know. So that was, it was, was extraordinary. And I thought, well, we'll be here for a long time. Mm. Um, but I knew that at some point we were talking, we'd now had our children, we're starting to have our kids. We'd had a son and then two daughters came in 1979, uh, twin girls. Uh, that there was some point I needed to have an opportunity to go out to New Zealand because it right. felt important. Gay didn't seem to mind too much, uh, but it was important, I think, that my children make some experience of their mother's culture. Mm. Just Paul, before we go mm, to New sure. Zealand, because I can tell where we're about to head, about just, head with, yeah, sure. <laughs> just with Lincoln and the engagement there, talk us through the engagement with the local community as well, sure. like being in the central city. What well, was that yeah, like? well, that's, that was brilliant. I mean, because it was everybody walks past this building. Right. And so we, the doors so what were open. some of the things you were doing to engage? Because I, I think many people view the church as a building. Mm. Like, mm. how do you um, encourage people to, to yeah. come in? Yeah, or yeah to, well, you do the best out. you can. I don't, that was not the prime focus for me was actually engaging with the structures and the institutions. And I'd I would meet people that way. Mm-hmm. And I'd be out in the street with a dog collar on. And I wouldn't go, you know, grab you or anything. But normally, you begin to build relationships with people in all sorts of levels. Mm-hmm. And I ran a, we ran a thing called an executive lunch, a bit like the mm-hmm. things that you do. Mm-hmm. And I'd have about 20 or 30 chief execs or senior managers who'd come in about once every couple of months. Mm-hmm. And it was very simple, BYO. Mm-hmm. And we'd talk about important issues. We didn't talk particularly about church issues, but right. we talk about the issues that the church should be engaging in, mm. you know, and social justice, what's happening in the city, what are the big issues, mm. and about their lives. Mm. So I ended up, actually I did some radio work, and I ended up, it happened in Auckland later on, which was, I get phone calls from people to say, you got time for a chat? Because mm. um, you sound like someone I could talk to? Mm. 
And the tragedy is, I'm, I'm, I feel really humbled by that, because people do want to do that, because uh, often they don't want to talk to a clergyman. You know, that's kind of, <laughs> especially these days. Mm. But so that's kind of what we did. And then along from one of the other, I had another church, which was part of the whole deal called St. Benedict's, which was only 100 yards away. Mm. And we turned that into a cafe, come play group, play school, and all sorts of stuff. So I go there quite a lot. I meet, that would be people off the street, mm. customers in the shops, because there was a big shopping mall and so on. Mm. So that's how it all happened. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was great. And I go to the uh, British Legion a lot and mm-hmm. see the guys there. And wherever I get, the, if ever I got an invite, I'd go mm-hmm. in with the dog collar on and implicate the church in what I'm doing, <laughs> which is cool. Yeah. So we were there and we were only there three years. Mm-hmm. Um, by that stage, uh, a couple of colleagues I'd worked with in Banbury before had both come out to New Zealand. Right. One was a New Zealander returning home, mm-hmm. and another was a palm, a British guy who was godfather to one of my kids, who also decided to come out. So part of that, and the whole thing came together, so we came out to, to visit. Mm-hmm. Visit case parents, hadn't met them before, and did all that, and met Paul Reeves, who was at that stage uh, Bishop of Waipu. Mm. And then a bit later, I said, well, sometime in the future. And then he contacted me when he was Bishop of Auckland and offered me a job mm. at Glenfield on the North Shore of Auckland. Hmm. moving from a pre-Norman conquest, beautiful, beautiful church, to what was rather like an extended mizzen hut in Glenfield. <laughs> and I was in agony of indecision about all that. Absolute agony. I didn't know what to do. Because I'd only been there three years. I loved the Bishop of Lincoln. I was coordinating the team that we had of others, of industrial chaplains and others. Hmm. I was a young guy, uh, three little kids, and I was loving the job. And what do I do? Anyway, one Sunday morning, this is kind of, you know, the magical stuff. There I am celebrating the Eucharist behind the altar and looking out. And there's, this is an Anglo-Saxon tower in front of you. And there's a glass window there. And there am I lifting up the, the, the host, the, the wafer, as a priest wafer. And just as I, and the pattern underneath it, the silver plate that it sits on. Mm-hmm. I'm lifting it up and I'm still kind of silica agony of indecision, really. And then the sun flashes on the plate that I'm holding the bis- and into my eyes and it's as though God speaks. It was like, it's all right. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. You could, don't worry. You, could, you make the decision. Whatever you want to make and it's going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Boom. So I said, okay, we're going to go. And the Bishop of Lincoln was very angry about that, but not so much about me. He was more angry with Paul Reeves. I think he chewed him off quite a bit. So we left, and we left in 1981. We arrived in April 1981 on the north shore of Auckland, Mm -hmm. and the Springboks came in June. Right. (laughs) So that was a pretty extraordinary entry to this country. And um, I remember going to see Paul Reeves. I'd arrived, and I'd got to know a few sort of liberally-minded people around the place. And the Springboks were here, and it was all happening. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, I'm really very conscious I am a foreigner. You know, and I, I've you been know, here for two months, right? I've been here for two months. <laughs> and you know, I'm very conscious that yeah. I have no right to you know, do stuff. And he said to me, I didn't bring you over here to sit on your hands. Mm-hmm. So off we went. And that's how it's been, really. Wow. And I've so what did it involve at that point with the Springboks and yeah, things? Yeah, with the Springboks. Yeah. yeah. What happened next? Oh, well, what happened with that was that I'd already connected with a, with a church in the city. I mean, I, my parish was on the North Shore. Yeah. Um, and I was linked with a couple of other colleagues there. And, uh, but there was this inner city church called St. Matthew in the City, mm. which I later became vicar of. Mm. And this was the liberal head flagship of the Anglican church in this country, really. And that was a focus for the anti-tool movement. Right. 
And I was already going there on a Sunday evening service because they ran a, what was called the community church, which was for gay, gay people. Mm-hmm. One of the very few churches that offered that. So it was a gay community that worshipped there. So I was in for that and would go and I'd be one of the priests on the roster who would celebrate the Eucharist for these guys. So I was already going there and then this all began to happen. So off we went and I wasn't in the heart of the organization. I was barely arrived, but mm. I was linked up pretty quickly. That's the interesting thing about in New Zealand. It doesn't take you very long mm. to get linked up with the people you need to get linked up with. Mm. We're so small, mm. which is wonderful. It's true, actually, because it is a small place. You mm. know, like the mm. total population is the size of many medium-sized cities in mm. other countries mm. so you do once you get to know one person often there's often, the intros that's how it to goes. the domino effect mm. right everyone absolutely else. <laughs> absolutely so we yeah. you know we, we gay and family we had the kids only little but we, mm. we were on the marches and and doing all that stuff but we didn't get into the really heavy heavy stuff right um though i was by wasn't very much longer after that i was asked if i would uh, beyond what's called the, the National Council of Churches, which was the, all the, ec- the churches ecumenically in those days were the National Council of Churches, and I was asked if I'd be on that for the mm-hmm. Anglicans, so I did. Mm-hmm. And then I was asked from them to be on uh, Te Whakafananga and Ahahi, which is a Māori equivalent. It's all gone now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was meeting some of these guys, again, radical people, mm-hmm. really interesting people, lovely, mm-hmm. lovely people. So some of that was stuff was happening, and that way I began to learn about more about Māori, and um, challenged, of course, but at the same time, I believe, I think, um, I want to believe that I was really beginning to understand a bit more as, wow, I've just got to be open to this mm. because this is not my land, you know. And at the end of the day, it isn't ever going to be my land, you know. It's just not where my uh, Turanga mm. Waiwai is. Mm. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a guest in that sense. Mm. And they've been amazing for me, really, over the years as we've got to know more Māori and got involved in the issues of the issues that we have in this country, mm. uh, of that sense of willingness and acceptance of us people, which is just amazing. Mm. So anyway, that was that on that, the North Shore. And that... Um that sort of 1980s culture, I guess, was quite different to today, oh, oh, wasn't it, in, in terms of te ao Māori and, well, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and all types yeah, yeah, of things yeah, yeah. like I that. I got to know Titifai Harawira really well. And it was those were the days of the treaties of fraud, honour the treaty, right. hikoi's up to Waitangi, so we toddle up in February for the hikoi and get involved in that. And tea was amazing. Titifai, I mean, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I went to an anti-racism workshop they had at St. College, St. John's College once over a few days with some of the other key people well known in the church for their sort of liberal radical stage and we were talking about something or other and we thought we'd done it all by about half past nine that night we're ready to go off and tea arrived and it was half past three in the morning before she let us go you know and uh, wow so learned heaps challenged right to the core and Mm. um, fascinating and I like to think that I still am able to be challenged to the core and I probably I am really in many ways so that was that bit then what do we do then after that I moved from that parish to Mount Albert in 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 Auckland Mm -hmm. beautiful lovely lovely parish St Luke's Mount Albert and uh, it was named after St Luke's the doctor the healer and it was full of healers Hmm. it was you know you know professional uh, traditional healing and also a lot of uh, different al- alternative times of healing. Mm. And I was there for seven years, and that was amazing. Mm. Uh, and got much more involved in the diocese at senior levels of management and government. Mm. And during that time, like at, at some point, did you look at each other? Did you look at Gay and say, it's time to go back to the UK? Really like, interesting. It's, yeah. How did that work? Well, it was really interesting because when we came, we thought, well, we'll give it five years. Right. Next thing we knew, it was seven years we'd been there. And there was no sense of wanting... Well, we went back. 
yeah, to, to, visit. to visit. But yeah. but the thing very clear, I think it's really clear at the beginning is it is not a good thing to come over from the UK and then go back very quickly. You've got to give yourself time right. to assimilate into this country and decide is this what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's too many of us that come over from overseas, you know, the whinging palm stuff, mm-hmm. come over and you bring your baggage. Uh, well, we do bring our baggage, and you've got to deal with the baggage. You can't, you can't think, oh, good, I've left UK, I've left all that stuff behind. Well, actually, it tends to go with you. Mm-hmm. So those things need to be worked through. In, I guess I had to do some of that stuff. Um, I had a brother, I, he's dead now, but he was in Australia, he was in Melbourne with his family. Mm-hmm. I have two other brothers in the UK, and my mother was still around when mm-hmm. we came out. And uh, she came out for a brief stay for a few months mm-hmm. and then went back again. And, well, that's how it was, mm-hmm. you know. But, and then she, she fell ill and, and uh, that, yeah. So mm-hmm. she was around for a bit. Because mm-hmm. I always find it's interesting, particularly when you have young children, to try to think about their context and mm. what's going to be best for them. Mm, exactly. So as I think I told you, my wife's from the UK. Mm. And so our first daughter was born in London. Mm. And then we left. And mm. then we were nomads for about 11 years, <laughs> living mm-hmm. in Tokyo, mm-hmm. Sydney, London, you know. And then eventually we looked at each other one day and said, where do we want our children to have a place, you know, a mm. sense of identity? Mm-hmm. And... Um, and what? And are we? <laughs> we're having fun every two or three years. We're moving to a new country, new culture, all that. Mm. But for our children, what are we doing for them? And so it was really that realization. And her mother was from the from Wellington, so it wasn't like a mm. completely foreign place for mm. her. So we came back in order to give the children that identity. I just yeah. wonder if that was at play. Yeah, with you as there well. was. There was in terms not so much about going back to the UK, but mm. when we moved to Mount Albert, we were there for seven years, mm. and the kids were in the same schools. We didn't move them around, and they stayed, they're good schools. They're really good schools. Mm. We got uh, some of the parish said, "Why are you sending your children to that primary school? Because it's full of Asian uh, Pacific Islanders." Mm. And I said, "Well, I said, it's a local school. Mm. It was great, terrific teaching. They could have gone up the road to a largely white flight type school, and so no, but mm. they've been great. And our son went to Mount Albert Grammar, mm. uh, which we could have sent him to." Open boys, I suppose, if we twisted it. Mm. But when it came to the girls, it's really interesting because they went to uh, Kofi Intermediate, which and was in the Maori immersion unit and that kind of stuff, and they loved it. Mm. And towards the end of the time there, they said they wanted to go on to uh, girls' grammar, Open girls' grammar. And at that point, um, I was beginning to say, well, okay, however, you are Pākehā. And actually, there are some parts about our culture and the way in which we live and learn that you also need to be part of you too. So I'd like you to go to Epsom Girls. And one of our daughters said, oh, it's okay. And the other said, mm, don't do that. So you had, we were out of zone. So we had to apply and you had the interviews from the, the dean of the whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we went along and I went with Laura and sitting with her. And I said, you've got to say whatever you need to say, Laura. And um, so they asked her the question, would you like to come to this school, Laura? I thought, mm. <laughs> and she said, I'm sure it would have many benefits for me. <laughs> Stopped that. And so, well, they did go there, and it was a good experience for them. Mm. But the, what they've been, what they, I think they've been brought up in, in that kind of multi, you know, multi, multicultural, bicultural environment, right. has never left them. Right. And, and that, for all three of them, I just think it's great. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they're all born in the UK, but they're Kiwis, they're mm. New Zealanders, and mm. this is home. And they're all living, they're all grown up. I mean, t- James is now I think, 41, the girls are 39, coming up 40. Mm-hmm. And 
New Zealand is their home. Mm. So and it's that Turanga Waiwai, isn't it? Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, they've travelled, they've been away literally for about 10 or 11 years, but yeah. they're all home now and settled, and I, I'm so pleased about that. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd love to um, jump a little bit yeah, forward sure. in terms of Christchurch and yep. how you ended up here, and, mm. and of course, the earthquakes and you sure. know the aftermath and that type of thing. Sure. But just before we do that, I do have a question for you. Um, I'm just curious about spirituality mm-hmm. and how when it's when it becomes your profession like you are every week up the front and mm-hmm. you're you know you're mm-hmm. leading the congregation and things mm-hmm. how do you how do you keep it fresh for yourself it's a good question um well because it's well for me it's always fresh because when i celebrate the eucharist which is the core of what we do mm. for me that's the most important thing that's happening in the universe at this moment right. wherever that's happening that is the most important thing that's happening in the universe at this moment. Mm-hmm. And for me, there's a great aha moment. This is kind of, whoa, I'm touching. This is mm-hmm. a thin place. Mm-hmm. I'm touching. If I'm open to it, this is a, a thin place. This is where the spiritual side of life and the physical are just touching. And whoa. So for me, it's always fresh, actually, even when I'm feeling rotten or not very well. Mm-hmm. There's a part of me that is acknowledging that's, that's what's happening mm-hmm. here. Um, and does that trace back to the thin place that night long ago? Yeah, it probably Christmas does. Christmas Eve, yeah. you know. That yeah, yeah. Because it, for me, so the church is not a, the ch- so for too many, I think the church is something like a separate organization with a separate life and a separate culture. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if you're outside of the church, then it's the dirty world outside type stuff. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm thinking, well, actually, we're all immersed in the whole of life. That's what the exciting bit is. Mm-hmm. I remember there's a guy, oh, was he a, a guy wrote, who started Sojourners in the U.S.? Jim, somebody. Mm. Anyway, he he was into great stuff. But he came when I was at Vicar of St. Matthews, he came and he talked about taking the gospel to the city, taking fighting you know, and taking Jesus or whatever you want to put using those language into this. I said, Well, I can't see it that way. Well, our, our our job is to try and what's got up to here? What's happening in this life, in this city? And to seek to point to, ah, oh, look, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Boris uh, Williams. Um, he he had that aptitude. He was a, he is a deeply spiritual man, and he he'd say he'd go up to someone like you, Stephen, and, and something was going. He said, "Just look at that! Oh wow!" So my job is to be reflecting and thinking, not just my head, but seeking to reach out. Mm. Oh, if you like, my heart and my soul is, what's God up to here? What's going on here? What is this divine love that pervades everything? What's happening? Mm. And so it's beyond the imagery of, you know, all the figures that we use in our liturgies and our doctrines that turn people off, though we need things like that. We need imagery. But it's much, much more, much more down to earth, ordinary. Mm. And it's like a, you know, we talk about words like God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. It's more, God is more natural than breathing. It's, it's kind of, and what's so sad for me in so many ways is that this is for everybody, it's for everybody, and um, and yet somehow the church has got in the way of that in all sorts of ways. Not just our church, but I think it's overall. If you if you miss out on that sense of spirituality, of connectedness, human beings are spiritual creatures, and I'm finding now in my older age that, and it's been true really, that a lot of people aren't interested in religion, but they're deeply interested in spirituality. They're deeply interested in what does it mean to be human, really. Mm in different ways or others, they ask those questions, I think. Mm-hmm. Or if they're caught up in all sorts of other stuff, it's how do I avoid being human, you know? Mm-hmm. And 
So, yeah, that spirituality well, thing's always been part of life. Yeah. Well, ultimately, those are the big questions that yeah, we all grapple with at, at whatever point it is. I actually think sometimes it's a shame. I've, meet, I've met people who are older, but haven't necessarily asked those key questions. Mm, mm. And you just, because for whatever reason, there was a tradition or they were caught up in something and mm. it was just the culture. That's what they did. But to actually go deeper and ask some of those mm. really super deep questions like, sure. you know, the who am I? That's Why right. am I here? Exactly. Where do I fit? All exactly. these types of yeah, things. Yeah, I was a youth officer in, in, in Oxford Diocese. So I was for the diocese. And that's exactly what we did. We put on things, you know, events and so on. But underneath that were the questions we were asking of these youngsters in all sorts of ways. Who am I? Mm. Uh, what does it mean to be me? How do I get out of traps? Mm. How do I leave home successfully? And, you know, often we're asking that question to the very day we die. Mm. How do I leave home successfully? Mm. Who am I sexually? What's all that about? All those sorts of deep, open-ended questions about mm. what does it mean to be me? Mm. Yeah, wow, that's so exciting mm. to be helping people explore that. And that's not about whether you're a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu. It's about being human. Mm. So I'm one of those. I happen to be a Christian. Mm. But I, I could be a Buddhist or a Hindu or Muslim or whatever, and I, I respect and honor those faiths as well mm. if they're about being you know, human growth, human vitality, and love. Mm. and what exploring what love means in action. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of where I'm at, really. Yeah. And can you just describe a little bit more about the thin places in life? Oh, thin place. Well, it's a very Celtic I'm, tradition. I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I like that phrase, though, because yeah. it, it, there is that sense of, you know, thick things that you can't see through, but the thin you yeah. can, and there's yeah. something, yeah. you know, or another phrase might be pulling back the veil, yeah. or, you know, like yeah. reaching into something new. Yeah, that's Just right. Exactly. It's a very Celtic way of thinking, the, the thin place. And a thin place is where you could happen anywhere, and you suddenly have a sense of, and it's kind of like where the whole spiritual dimension of life suddenly come close and touched you. Mm. Just for a moment. Just a glimpse. Um and I, you know, it, happened, it can happen in church. Uh, hopefully it happens a lot in church for some people. But it'd be happening, you know, you walk along, you know, the usual story, walking on a beach or whatever, mm. or it can happen in a conversation. It feels to me a little bit like that with you and me, mm -hmm. actually, at the moment. This mm -hmm. kind of, we're actually touching some, this mm. is interesting. Mm. It's when, when Rowan, Rowan William talks about, ah, oh, look at that. Watch. Mm. You, always, you ought to just, ah, just be quiet and experience that. Um, so those are those thin places, and it, it, um, yeah, that's how it kind of... Which maybe, you know, in a church context, you've got this often stained glass windows and different mm. um, reminders, visually, crosses mm. and other things, in order to help people to get to that place. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you're right as well. You can be walking and there's a sunrise, there's a oh, sunset, absolutely. you know, or uh, the most obvious one would be this little child has been born... Oh, Five me. minutes ago, and tell I'm holding me. this person who's looking at me with eyes yeah. that have never seen yeah. the world before. You know, yeah. that's the type of thing you're absolutely. talking about, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I, I later read of, uh, of a, a medieval story about how the world stopped when Jesus was, you know, this kind of like mm -hmm. sudden. And I remember walking out of the maternity hospital after our first child had been born, and I just thought, why? What's happening? Why is all this going on? Right. Why hasn't everything stopped? It was just yeah. Like, oh. Why are people still going to work? Don't oh, they yeah, know what's happening? Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. So, and we have those moments, all of us, and it's just having the sense to stop and to hear them, enjoy them, save them. Uh, Mother Julian of Norwich, you know, the great 14th-century English hermit woman, 
She said, put your mind into your heart and stand in the presence of God all day. Well, whatever God might mean for you, whether that's the sense of wholeness of being one or, or in touch with the universe or that kind of stuff. Mm. And I, it's true. Mm. It's true. But and the, a lot of the time I'm not, like everybody else. I'm in my head a lot of the time. Mm. But actually when I stop and think, then you suddenly things begin to change again mm. and you get more in touch with what's really important. Mm. Which comes back to what you said at the beginning was just meditation. Yeah. And I think there is, a, it's obviously quite a trendy term mm. in the terms of mm. um you know, other religious traditions like Buddhism, mm. it, it's particularly more recently become very popular. But the reality is, even within the Christian tradition, it has a long history. Oh, hell, hell yeah, from the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, the desert fathers and mothers in exactly. the fourth, fifth century. I mean, and all the monastic tradition, it's mm. all in. It's all there. Mm. Uh, I mean, and it still is, still going, obviously still is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and contemplative prayer is at the heart of what I seek to do. I'm not very good. I mean, I, I want everybody to be an ordinary common or garden mystic, you know, sort of. Mm-hmm. At, um, and mindfulness, or whatever it's called now, is the, is the way in which it's now being talked about. Okay, that's fine. There's quite a few people making quite a lot of money out of mindfulness. And mm-hmm. uh, part of me says, mm, a bit cynical about that. But, yeah, nevertheless, uh, if that's actually assisting people to get in touch with what it means for them to be human and spiritually alive, mm-hmm. wow, isn't that great? Mm-hmm. Isn't that wonderful? And if the churches, in their own way, can connect with that sense of what it means to be human, mm. then we're okay. Mm. And I, I, the churches are, are, all, are crusty organizations that have been around for a very, very long time. And uh, in them you have the most wonderful, amazing, deeply spiritual people mm. and a whole lot of people. And I'd be part of that as part of the time where you're caught up, where you become a servant of the institution, you maintain the institution, all mm. the, the buildings, the admin, the stuff. And it becomes a kind of, if you're not careful, it's just like a, you know, ongoing, just running the show. Mm. When in fact, a whole lot of it needs to be, stop. Mm. What am I here for? What am I doing? How am I connecting? How is the gospel, the good news, being shared in a way that can be heard uh, in a way that doesn't mean you've got to be a grammar Bible down someone's throat, mm. if you see what I mean. Mm. And I think what you're talking about, it, the fascinating thing is our current culture, mm. it's so focused on the immediate. Mm-hmm. It's so focused on, oh, I've got a message. I need to check this. I need to make mm. a phone call. Mm. Facebook, mm. oh, there's a little red mm. dot. I better mm. check what's mm. happening. Mm. Um, and it's really, it, it's a culture of distraction yep. and superficiality. Yep where people are constantly looking for the next thing, you know, mm. the next iPhone's been released. Sure, but alongside that, I think, I'd like to think that there's a pushback, mm. um, certainly amongst the millennials and others, there's a pushback to that that's just happening kind of like, um, I can't even seem to help it happening, mm. it's, especially in a world that we live in at the moment. But it's a pretty scary place to be, you know. Yeah. And how do you push back into that? Yeah, and well, these, that's where I was going with this, yeah. is that our modern culture is all emphasizing that, but then mm. you've got these other conversations, which is mm. the deeper ones, mm. saying actually maybe there's more, there's mm. more going on here. Mm. And uh, I was chatting with someone. This is this is a little diverging road here, but I was chatting with someone who's a palliative care doctor mm-hmm. about death mm. and the fact that in our culture we don't often talk about death. Mm. It's almost like a taboo subject. Mm. But actually, through death there's many things which can be opened up Absolutely. which provide life. And I'm sure in your context yeah, you would yeah, have yeah. seen it Absolutely. where people unfold in new ways mm. that they never did their entire life mm. until they realized that they wouldn't be here much longer. Mm. 
and that that's that depth is something that we sometimes lose i think in our culture because mm. we're scared of it and yeah. we don't like to talk yeah. about it yeah it's a great shame that's true yeah. that is true and we now talk about people passing mm. <laughs> you know he passed i uh, mean he died right. well let's actually acknowledge this is what happens to us mm. and somehow to um, i mean i'm not scared of dying um you know i die i mean what happens to me when i die I don't actually know, I, mm. but I do actually believe that love never dies. It always lives on. Now, now I don't know what that means. And I, when I take a funeral, I often say that. But what I do would say at a funeral is, but the love that held you and this person who's died together in your life, the good things, the not so good things, but the love that you've got at the heart of this relationship will never die. Mm. It always will be there. And whatever needs to be there, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. And mm. I don't worry about that. Mm. I mean, because love, love's one, you know. Mm. Yeah. Love is stronger than hate, and life is stronger than death. That's a core faith statement mm. that I picked up from someone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, we've had, uh, that was a wonderful rabbit hole to jump down, so thank you for indulging me. <laughs> no, not I just, sure. I like to learn from people, and, and sure. you've obviously thought about this, and I love that idea of thin places, and mm. the, the aim for the podcast is to provoke people to mm. think for themselves, mm. and mm. I think this will be one of those, you know, mm. excerpts where people will sure. do that. So it's a very ancient Celtic sense of, of yeah. life. And the Celtic church has got some beautiful, beautiful imagery mm. and poetry, mm. which mm. gets kind of right into the earthiness of what it means to be alive. Mm. It's pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, um, let's move on a little bit in terms of your own history. And mm -hmm. we're meeting here in Christchurch. Mm -hmm. and. You've, you came here and then you went away and you've come back. So mm -hmm. just talk us through yeah, sort of okay. what was happening. Sure. Well, I, I'd, I'd been at St. Matthew in the city. Mm. Yeah, I actually was vicar there and jobs in the diocese. And um, about well, 1999, I guess, I'd had enough. God and I were okay, but I was kind of had enough of the church for a bit. So I was headhunted for a job in Wellington as a management consultant, basically being a mentor to priests, uh, to people. In business, who are losing their jobs and doing all that kind of mentoring and guidance, so I did that, right? Um, which was really interesting. I didn't last very long because the company that I've been employed by sold and downsized, and I was last in, first out. But I met as a friend of mine who ran companies in Wellington, and we had he and I got on really well. And we start, he started a new company which I worked for called Encore, and that was about values-based training. Mm. Uh, training managers, conflict management, all the kind of stuff. What does it mean to be a team, team building, all the kind of stuff we've really been talking about. Mm. So I did that for a couple of years, thinking I'd be there for a long time in Wellington. Loved Wellington. Mm. And um, then what happened was in Auckland, they, they were building a new retreat and conference center on the North Shore at Torbay called Vaughan Park. And um, I was asked if I'd put my hat in the ring for that. And I thought, and then it was, yeah, why not? Because that could be a place where I could continue to do this kind of on the edge of the church stuff with corporate people or other people who didn't have much connection with the church mm. and have a venue where that could happen, as well as, um, as, well as sort of developing the life of the, of the center, which uh, was, was, was struggling a bit. Mm. So again, I went up there and thought back to Auckland from Wellington. So we thought we'd be there for forever. We were there for 10 months. Because at that time, the Bishop of Christchurch came up and said, I want you to put your hat in the ring for Dean of Christchurch. So I thought, oh. So I did. And thinking, oh, well, here goes. We'll see. And Paul Reeves had said to me, because I saw a lot of Paul, mm -hmm. um, he said, we don't have many plums in the cake, so put your hat in the ring. So I did. And it was all the way through the interviews with three other really nice people, guys who were in for the job. 
it just felt you're the one, you're the one. Mm. So there I was. Mm. So we came, mm. 2002. And for me, it has been, it has been the very best job in the church for me. Right. A, it was a stunning, a lovely building, uh, and a brilliant choir and resources to do things, and uh, a tradition through my predecessor and the one before, John Block, of engaging with the life of the city. So it was like the one I had in Lincoln, the St. Matthew, uh, St. St. Mary Louisford in, in mm. Lincoln, that, that job mm. was like that, only writ large. And so it was amazing. And, you know, there I was and engaging with the city and the arts and the, the business structure. I turn up, I get invited to all these dudes that you guys run, you know, <laughs> or cocktail dudes. And I turn up with my dog collar on and to start with this, what's the hell he doing here? Yeah. <laughs> and then breaking through that. So, oh, no, good to see you, Pete. Really good, blah, blah, blah. And then conversations. And mm. then can you be involved in this? Can you do this? And not just me, but others in the team. And the team built. And we managed to get the council to give us two and a half thousand $250,000 a year for what we were doing for the city because mm. we were one of the biggest tourist attractions in the country, 700,000 people coming in. Uh, I would have 150 volunteers who were working as guides and the rest as well as a team of about seven or eight full-timers. Mm-hmm. And it was an un- unusual building yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the, in the, uh, for a church context. Yeah, know, but I have mean, it right there in the center of the absolutely city. Absolutely in the yeah. center of the city and in so many ways at the heart and soul of the city. So... Absolutely, and I would sell that. And it wasn't just me saying that. It was mm. the heart and soul of the city. And it is the heart and soul of the city still. So when it came down, I remember talking to the world's press, because they're woof, they're on me, mm. was the heart of our city has been broken. And like Bob Parker was saying at the time, we will rebuild it. Mm. And then I got asked lots of questions about, is this an act of God? What's happened? You know, what has God done to Christchurch? And right. you had some really freaky people talking about it was because of the prostitutes or whatever. I mean, nonsense stuff. Yeah. And I, my view on that was, look, this is not an act of God. This is the, the, the planet doing what the planet does. It's a created dynamic life force, so it's doing what it does. Mm. But the act of God you're seeing in the care and the compassion and the courage of people of, of Christchurch getting together and caring for one another and those who are coming alongside us and, 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 and sharing their lives to assist us, that's the act of God. Mm, mm. So that, I stood with all that stuff, and there we were. So. Yeah. And so just uh, the actual... Big earthquake. <laughs> like, where were you? Were I was you, in my it, I was in my study yep. in the back of the cathedral, right? Uh, and it all, you know, the the all the bookcases fell over. The chandelier was waving on. I think, oh, this is funny. What's going on here? Yeah. Um, and then we had this wonderful antique grandfather clock. But fortunately, that was attached to the wall, so they didn't fall off. Hmm. So I thought, oh, I oh, shit, there must have been an earthquake, <laughs> and I didn't understand what was going on. And um, so I went out. Went out of my study, and there were staff people doing a few things. And I went to grab the, you know, the vis jacket with the, mm-hmm. one of my colleagues, and the others were, you know, we needed to get people out of the cathedral. We right. didn't know what it was like, so you walked into this huge cloud of dust, mm-hmm. and people were being really good. I mean, there was no screaming; they were getting out, and then saw the hole right. where the tower came down. I thought, oh, crikey, people will be dead here. I mean, it's the middle of the tourist season, at ten to one, you know, and. We had crowds. Of, we would have had crowds of people coming in and out of the place. Mm. So got people out. Others doing all that. We had to also stop people coming back in because mm. already people are curious. Well, what happened in their times? So, unbelievable. Right. Um, lots of freaky people. And um, I mean, and, and I remember I, I was comforting a young American woman who came out of the tower, and she was pretty hysterical. And she said, "There are people behind me. There are people behind me, and the rocks are coming down on them." And I, I'm the last one out. Types of. Oh, God. Um, 
And fortunately, we had a, a conference of doctors or something in town, so they were helping out. Mm. And then things were going on. In fact, um, you know, in some ways, the earthquake, the, the cathedral had been earthquake strengthened in the 90s. And in fact, in many ways, that's, uh, it, I think the cathedral, this tower took, I think it was about 15 seconds before it finally collapsed. And there was enough time for people to move. And mm. it looks, they moved away if they were sitting eating their lunches around the town. They moved out the way. But we were sure that people had been killed, absolutely sure. Mm. So that was pretty horrendous, of course. And I was involved in the emergency center with, you know, working with the, our prime minister and others and all kind mm. of stuff. Mm. And um, which was really interesting working. That, but by already, very quickly, I was engaged, I'd already got engaged with, a, with local community people in, uh, in the East, because I was lived in the, I lived in Richmond. Mm. And um, a group called Cancern, we were a brilliant group of, of people who were wanting to encourage and energize the local people because feeling like we're just being told what to do by the council or whatever. Mm. And the, the communities have to be involved in all. You have to talk to the people who've been most affected, the householders, the people living here. And um, that, so part of me was also trying to push for that to happen a bit because, and then on came, um, I think, John Hamilton, who was head of civil defense, brilliant guy. And I remember I was in, in the art center, which was a, at the time, and he arrived and I, and I knew a few people, obviously I was moving around and mm. poncing about doing stuff. And I said to John, John, we've got some people here who represent a group called Cancern, who are now local people, and you really need to talk to them. Mm. And he said, sure. So they met, and after that he met with these people and other local people for, for the time he was here. And it was like a gift from God, really, because mm. you could listen to local people. Because things, some of the things that were going wrong, like where are all the portal is, so they're all in the west. Why aren't they? Why, you know, why is this happening? Why is there not better connection? Mm. Stuff like that was going on. Yeah. Um, and then the cathedral itself, uh, an extraordinary team of urban search and rescue guys, um, Kiwis. These were Kiwis. A guy called mm. Ralph was in charge, and they started to work through the building, and um, you know, very delicate stuff put in very dangerous stuff and I remember and I said the most important thing is you keep safe mm -hmm. um, but when you get to the point where you think you'll find some bodies then please let us know and we will be here mm -hmm. so it'll be a triage and, and we'll come and, sure. and the Maori bishop wanted to come and um, our own bishop wasn't able to but he came uh, he was ready to come and I had staff ready and we were going to go in and as bodies came out we would you know do what you would do as a as, as priest or in mm -hmm. terms of that so anyway, Ralph said to me, look, he rang me and said, look, um, I think we're about ready, so I might be in touch with you shortly. And, you know, we had no power at home. We had, you know, you know had a cell phone that was better. Mm. So about one o'clock in the morning, the phone goes and, and it's Ralph. And he's saying, are you ready for this? I could completely see it happening now. I said, yeah, yeah, what is it, mate? He said, there's nobody here. And I paused and I said, hang on, tell me again. There's nobody here. And I just fell apart. Hmm. I just wept. And he went on. No, they'd been through the whole place. There was nobody in the building. Hmm. Wow. What a miracle. And later on with the media saying, well, obviously, it's, we are, we're very deeply pleased that there was no one there. But, of course, 185 people have actually hmm. lost their lives. Mm -hmm. However, of course, that they weren't in the cathedral is, is a blessing for us. Hmm. And I'm going on far too long. But one of the interesting... But you see, you have the first-hand story of what was yeah, going yeah, yeah, on, yeah. so that's but, why I'm curious. But what was really interesting, at the Sunday before, or thereabouts, mm. 
Um, the archbishop, my bishop and the Maori bishop, had come, well, the Maori bishop had come with his people to raise the tapu on the building. It was mm. a consecrated place. So you raise the tapu, you release the whole, if you like, so, so it can all be dealt with. And so they did that. It was beautiful. I cried. And, and it was just beautiful to see. And, and it did feel like a whole weight is being lifted off the building. And I was thinking, this can't be so. There are dead people here. Mm. It can't. That happened. But actually, there weren't. Hmm. Extraordinary. I mean, I've got that memory, is, obviously, as you can tell. It's very powerful. Very it's very strong. Powerful. Yeah. It's very strong. Yeah. So that's what happened on the day and, and the rest of it. And then all, everything went on. And, and unfortunately, the bishop, Victoria, and I had very different points of view about what the future should look like. Mm-hmm. She's the boss. And after a while, it became clear to me that I... I really didn't think I could work in that situation, mm. um, so I resigned, mm. and um, which was hard. Oh, it was really hard, mm. but it didn't feel right for me to carry on. So I resigned. I actually didn't have a job to go to, though I think Bishop Victoria thought that I was already looking to be a city councillor or something, because I've talked about it in the past at some point, but I didn't have a job. Mm. But interestingly enough, just just I've made that decision, Chrissy Williams, who was a councillor on Burwood Pegasus on the east, but we were a... a, a a, a sort of gathering of people on Riverside, River Road, and she came, I'm going to resign from the council. I said, oh, okay. And then things began to... So I was elected to the city council partway through. Hmm. And that was an amazing time, just for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a lot, hopefully hopefully made a contribution. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. well, It was a unique time in the city's life, wasn't totally, it? Like, totally, totally. There's not many times in... That yeah. any city goes through that no, sort of thing. Uh, amazing. And, you know, as Bob Parker said to me, you're the only one who knew you, what you were letting yourself in for. Right. <laughs> before then. So there I was for a couple of years. And in many ways, I should have um, had another go, done another term. But um, I don't know, something stopped me from doing that. And um, mm. I think I kind of was feeling it's time to be a granddad and do things. And Anyway, but so I did. Didn't do that. So that was it. Started to retire then. <laughs> Then ended up doing a locum in Auckland with the church up there, which was fun. Mm-hmm. Came back and thought, well, we're a tire now, and we're still doing stuff with groups like Cancern and Eastern Vision, which I convene now. That's, again, another group. That group's main priority, and a broader, but mostly about the East, is about not the decision that's made, but how the decision is made. Mm-hmm. So it's about processes to make sure that local people, community people, are engaged, and the powers that be, the big bureaucracies that run this place, so many of them, far too many of them, um, actually are really being listening and taking note and acknowledging and being steered by the people. We had a tagline in uh, Cancern, which was, the wisdom of the local community always exceeds the knowledge of the experts. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a pretty bold statement, but, but, but there's some truth in that. Mm. So I, was, I still convene that group. I support Avon Atakra. Uh, network and what they're doing with the River Corridor and, mm-hmm. and what's been happening there. And I'm still involved in kind of Gary Moore's Tuesday Club mm-hmm. and advocating here things, here and there, doing that. So there we were. So then that was, that was, that's happening now. But um, towards the end of 2015, thinking I was now settling back into life, mm. the Archbishop rang me and he asked me if I'd go and be Dean of Taranaki mm. for a couple of years to help them out because their building was closed for earthquake repairs. It wasn't damaged, but it was only 14% of the code, and he wanted it, me to go and help and develop a new vision. So that's what we did for two years. Hmm. He said, I'd do it till I'm 70. That's what I did. 
And on my way, I just just coming back from that, I learned that Bishop Victoria had resigned. And so, wow, what was interesting. Came back, been back since June last year, April, May, June last year, mm-hmm. and involved in doing the Eastern Vision and the rest of it. And also being a, a granddad. And Gay and I have decided, well, travel. We're retired. We're, I'm 70, Gay's a bit younger than me. Mm-hmm. And we, we picked up a, a maxim uh, when we were traveling from an older couple said, adventure before dementia. And I thought, yeah, it's fair <laughs> So that's what we're up to. That's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fascinating to hear your life story and just to, to understand the, the patterns and the weaving mm-hmm. that's gone on, you know, even back at Lincoln and what you were doing there mm-hmm. and then how it resonates with what you did in Auckland, which mm-hmm. resonated with Christchurch. And, yeah. and still yeah. here this, in some ways. I mean, I'm, I am retired pretty much uh, yeah. doing stuff. Uh, but um, I choose to, I decided not to worship at the cathedral because it kind of feels like gets in the way of the new dean and I don't want to do that. Mm. Step on his toes. So I go to a, a parish called St. Luke's in the city. It doesn't have a building anymore, uh, but they're a lovely group of Anglo-Catholic, which is, uh, suits me, mm-hmm. um, that meet at the Knox Presbyterian Church. The tragedy is that we had Durham Street Methodist, Knox Presbyterian, and St. Luke's Anglican all worshipping in the Knox's place, and I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if the three of you, us, could get together, but it never happened. They'll have to do their own thing. Right. Anyway, so the future for St. Luke's is, look, is looking interesting in terms of how they might develop back on their own site, mm-hmm. and I think that's potentially really exciting about this central city parish in a new way with a new building and a core of support, a small, small group of people mm. can actually engage again mm. and be a spiritual hub or a chapel for the city mm. and be a kind of weekday place. Mm. And try so, to uncover the thin places, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely right. And while I don't see myself particularly being priest for that, but, but to be part of all that and I, you know, help out and mm. celebrate here and there, but yeah. I'm trying, conscious that I don't want to get in the way. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that would happen. Um, just thinking through, I'm just curious, maybe as the final question, just to ask about um, the time that you've been in New Zealand in the mm. 1980s, 90s, 2000s. You know, the people through your positions and different things you were involved in, you got to meet amazing people. Mm. Mm. Are there anything? Are there any things that you notice about people like Paul Reeves, for example, mm. that that you realize? that sets them apart. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had the, I had the privilege of knowing Sred Hillary in June and, and um, partly through doing some stuff mm. at the church and asking if he would help out and doing a video thing and got to know quite well. I was, you know, I am the chaplain for Antarctica, New Zealand, so I've been down there with mm. did, did a lot of the Erebus remembrances on the 25th and Ed was there for that, I got to know him. And so I, mm. I had the privilege of having a fairly significant part in his funeral. Um, mm. But, and I remember saying at his funeral in the eulogy I did that Ed Hillary was just an ordinary New Zealander who did extraordinary things. And what he did was to encourage other ordinary New Zealanders to do extraordinary things. Mm-hmm. And it was true, mm-hmm. absolutely true. Paulie's another outstanding guy, really. And I've had the privilege of meeting some amazing people. You know, mm-hmm. um, Nelson Mandela came to our church at St. Matthew in the city when he was here for the Commonwealth Heads of Government in 1995. And we got him through the assistance of the government mm-hmm. and the South African government to come and this is where he made his thank you at St. Matthew in the city for what New Zealand's had done in terms of the whole apartheid stuff hmm. Wow, well, you know you meet people like that yeah so I've had a hugely privileged life and and met some extraordinary people and a lot of those extraordinary people are just ordinary people right 
doing ordinary things yeah. in an extraordinary way. So is that what's impressed you, having gotten to know some of them, mm. is that actually this is just... I, going back to your origins, you know, the pub, mm. it's mm. just another person sitting, mm. having mm. a beer. Yeah. Um, but they've somehow been able to do those extraordinary things, yeah, right? Yeah, and, and maintained a sense of... of, of Almost humility, really. Mm. I mean, they're, they're strong, strong-minded people. But at the same time, you meet those wonderful people who aren't in those positions. Mm-hmm. And the humbleness of... You know, one of the things I don't like about our honour system, of course, is I sometimes say the people we should be giving the Order of New Zealand to are the people we're giving the, whatever it is, the, the basic medal or whatever it is. Mm. Some of the people you hear about what they're doing in their local communities mm. is just, wow. You know, it's just phenomenal. They're the ones we should... Light raise up, but not to say that those who've got the big gongs don't deserve them. But you know what I mean? It's a kind of yeah, it's it, it's we honoring people is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it feels like it's a bit out of balance. Mm-hmm. You know? You're honored because you, uh, you've got a big name or you've got a big job or something, and it, I'm not denying it's important, but yeah, I think yeah. that there's another level in which it's some of those, yeah, lowly. People, wow, mm. what an amazing, mm. amazing. People are fascinating. Mm. Which comes back to sort of biblical principles, of principles, if you like, sort of the last will be first, the first mm. will be last, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah, Because right. on this podcast, I interview people from all backgrounds. Yeah, yeah, you do. And one of the fascinating things is to, to, one of the reasons I'm doing it actually is to give a platform for some people who would never get a chance mm. to tell mm. their story. Mm. Mm. And when I'm talking with them and just realizing that's amazing, what you're mm. doing is worth knowing other people will be inspired by this totally. but no one knows you know yeah, <laughs> so totally. um it's all about telling stories isn't it it's all about telling stories yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and as you discovered i don't mind talking about myself yeah <laughs> <laughs> no it's but, good uh, well i feel like we could have gone in many different directions but sure. I, I really appreciate your time and coming mm. in and chatting mm. and mm. um yeah we went pretty deep there with um the thinness yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. i really yeah, yeah. enjoyed that so mm. thank you so much for your time it's a real and, pleasure uh, i've enjoyed being part of this and um i think you're doing a great job great thank you very much thank you well i hope you enjoyed that interview with peter and you found it as helpful and therapeutic as i did when i was going through to edit it thank you peter for your words which again are relevant to the city of christchurch if you enjoy this episode then consider checking out some of the earlier ones as well until next time mm.